0: theyeshiva.net Good morning, everybody. There is a very interesting and fascinating and intriguing mitzvah in the portion of Kisetzay, this week's Parsha, that at the surface would seem completely irrelevant to our day's but yet, upon deeper reflection, it has a lot of relevance. And I'm referring here to the mitzvah known as Yibum, Yud, veiz, vav, Mem, or as they translate it in English, as Leveret Marriages. A Leveret Marriage. And the concept of Yibum is that the posseh, the Torah says in Parashas Kiseitzeh, if a man is married and he dies childless, So there is a mitzvah, a commandment that his wife should marry his brother, one of his brothers. And that way they would have a child, hopefully, and that would give a perpetuation to the brother who passed away, who never had children and therefore never left a legacy, never left someone to continue his family, but now by his wife, the widow, marrying his brother, and they would have a child. So that child would be, so to speak, a continuation of the life of of the first man who passed away. That's known as the mitzvah of yibum. Of course, both he and the widow have to... uh, (laughs) the shoe or something like that I no, they, they, they have to want want it uh-huh. but what if he doesn't want it or she doesn't want it so the Torah doesn't obligate them that they have to be married by force obviously that would not work but then there's option number two then there's a mitzvah of chalitza chalitza is they come to Besdin. It's, it's a, it's an it's a procedure in which she unties his shoe and removes it And another few things that are done, and then the the bond is severed, they're not connected to each other, and he is free to remarry. He is free to marry who he wants and she is free to marry, remarry whoever she wants. That's known as Khalitza. As you know, during the last approximately 1500 years since Talmudic times the universal custom of ashkenazi communities was to prefer Khalitza over Yibum Khalitza over Leveret marriages um uh, The first one who started Yibam, who's the first one who started the Mitzvah of Yibam? Anybody knows? Right. No, far before. We have it already in Bereshav. In Bereshav we already have far, many, many years before the Torah was given, we have the Mitzvah of Yibam. We have it by Yehuda. Yehuda's family. The Torah tells us in Parshish Vayeshev that Yehuda married... But it was unknown. It was unknown, no, but before that... Exactly. Yehuda had two sons, right? Yehuda got married, and his wife gave birth to two sons, three sons. Eir, Einan, and Shelah. Eir married Tamar. And Eir died childless. So what did Yehuda tell Tamar? And his second son, Einan, they should marry each other. And he calls that Yibum. So Tamar married her brother-in-law, Ainan. But Ainan died also childless. So really, the laws of Yibum would dictate that Tamar Tamar should marry the third son, Shela. But Yehuda did not want that because he thought that Tamar was guilty for the death of both of her husbands. He didn't realize... That it wasn't her, it was they. <laughs> so he didn't want her to marry Shayla. Right. nervous if I had three sons and, and, right. and two, Now, Tamar was in a very difficult situation because, on one hand, she was bound to Shayla by Yibum. On the other hand, Yehuda did not want to give her to Shayla. So, what did she do? Der Rambam explains. That before Matan Torah, before the Torah was given, the practice of Yibun was not only with brothers-in-law, but it was with any close kin in the family. So the father-in-law would be included in Yibun. So Tamar, really in a very impossible situation, she's not free to marry anybody else because she's tied to her brother-in-law in the laws of Yibun, which was practiced before Matan Torah, at least in this family. She was in a bind. So what did she do? She engaged, as we know, Yehuda. Which, according to the laws of Yibn before the Torah was given, would work perfectly. Yehuda did not know that it was Tamar. And when he heard that Tamar was pregnant, he, of course, speculated, or presumed, that Tamar had relations with somebody else outside of the Yibn relationship with Shelah. was allowed to have relations with someone else? Because he apparently had... Well he was a single man, his wife died. You're talking about Yehuda, Yehuda, yeah. Yeah. So what does that mean you're allowed to go party? I mean I don't know. No, No. you're not allowed unless you marry the woman. So apparently he had to marry her. You're asking a very good question. What was Yehuda's Hashbun to uh, to engage Tamar? Not even knowing that she's Tamar. Tamar knew that's Yehuda. Right. So it's fine because of Yibum because he's her father-in-law, and both her husbands died. But you're asking Yehuda, what was his calculation? What was his cheshma? It's true he wasn't married, and it's true he presumed that she was a single, unmarried woman. But it's not like a concubine, because a concubine is somebody that you commit to. You're living together in the house. But here it was just a one-time event, right? He met her, as the Torah says, on the road. The what? The others. The 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 Torah was given? some people say the Torah was given It says, the Gemara says that the Avais observed the Torah before it was given. They knew the laws. They knew the laws. Knew the mitzvahs. How they knew the mitzvahs? Because a lot of the mitzvahs of the Torah were revealed. The mitzvahs of the Torah were revealed already. From Avram, and already before, yeah. They knew the laws of Torah, yeah. They knew the laws of Yibam, yeah. The Gemara says that Avram observed even erev tafshilim, prepare the food <inaudible> erev yamtiv. Huh? You know, it says that Yaakov put on tefillin, but they did it differently. The mitzvah, the concept of the mitzvahs they had, but the mitzvahs were done differently. For example, it says that uh, Light offered his guests the angels matzahs. Why? Because it was Pesach. But Pesach is celebrated because of Yitzhak and they weren't in Egypt yet, right? It says that Yitzchak wanted two goats. Yaakov delivered two goats to Yitzchak when he took the blessings from Asaf. Why two goats? Shemashi says it was Pesach. One was for the carbon Pesach, one was for the carbon Chagiga. But there was no Yamtiv then because they weren't in Egypt. The answer to all of this is. They probably celebrated Sukkot too. That the answer to all of this is that all of the Yamim Tovim and all of the mitzvahs of the Torah were there before. Their concepts that were always there throughout history. It's just that when history brought about certain events, the Torah then, in its version that was given to the Jewish people that we have, associated the mitzvah of Pesach with a certain event. So each mitzvah has a concept, that has a reality, it has a message that was timeless. Even before, it says that the Torah was there before the world was created. Certainly there was no Pesach before the world was created. There was no Shavuot. there was no sukkahs. You understand? Each one represents a certain spiritual concept, a spiritual energy. Now, as history developed, certain events became associated with certain mitzvahs. You understand what I'm saying? So therefore they observed. As far as Yehudah is, the Medrush asks the question, and the Medrush says, a very interesting thing, that a Malach pushed him to have a relation with him, to relationship with him. What does that mean? So some svarim explained, there's a sefer called Meha Shilayach, by the Ishbitzer. He says that sometimes a person has a craving to something that's very, very intense. Now, when we have a very intense craving, we don't know, we're not sure if it's coming from the Yetzir Ta'iv, or maybe coming from the Yetzir Just because I want something doesn't mean it's necessarily healthy and productive. When a person, however, is a tzaddik, in other words, they know themselves, that they refine themselves very, very deeply, and they crave only Kedusha, now obviously for this you have to be able to be on a Madrega level where you know this about yourself. Like it says in Tanya, that the person transformed their animal soul. Then when they have a craving, they know it's coming from a sacred place. And that's what it means that Yehuda, this Malach pushed him. In other words, he could identify the craving as a sacred craving because he knew he doesn't have any other agendas in his life. Most of us were conflicted. Some cravings are holy, some cravings are unholy. So Yehuda goes and he lives with her and she becomes pregnant, of course. He thinks she betrayed her relationship. Later he finds out, of course, that it was he. And children are born. And this, in the words of the Medrash, was the beginning of Yibum. Yehuda began the mitzvah of Yibum. He's the first one to perform the mitzvah of Yibum. In other words, even before the Torah was given, as the Ramban puts it in Parshish Vayeshev, they knew about it. And as the Ramban puts it, that this mitzvah combodies one of the great mysteries of the Torah, and therefore, even before the Torah was given, the Jews knew about the benefits of a levirate marriage. Now, what is the meaning that the child who was born will perpetuate the first one who passed away? Some explain that it means that the child who is born from the union between the brother of the dead man and his former wife who are both intimately connected to the deceased man, one as a brother and one as a former wife, he's considered the spiritual son of the deceased. Many of the Kabbalists even explain that the first child born of a leveret marriage is always the reincarnation, the Gilgal, of the soul of the person who died. So it brings him, so to speak, back to life. He's, so to speak, living in the form of There's this twins. child. Huh? They were twins. There was twins. If they were twins, so they were both a one was, heir, one was Obviously, it would seem that this mitzvah practically is not relevant very much. Although, as I said, there were communities and there were traditions, especially among the Sephardim, where they practiced Yibum. It was almost unheard of by the Ashkenazim. Yibum. If such a case happens, unfortunately, by the Ashkenazim they will only do chalitza. And today, even by the Svardim, you'll seldomly have yibum, even in in the case where it's applicable, there there will usually be chalitza. It is interesting, however, that yibum is really the origin of the offspring of Mashiach. Right? Because it's Tamar and Yehuda's relationship, which was essentially a relationship of yibum, that produced their two sons, Peretz and Zarach. And ultimately, Peretz would be the great, great, great grandfather of David HaMalach, the father of Shleim HaMalach. and of course, Melech HaMashiach, would be, is a descendant of David HaMalach and Shleim HaMalach. It's not a terrible mitzvah. <laughs> if. No, not terrible if, at all. you If you like your brother in law, fine. If you you don't do like it if, it, if not much. Not. not so bad. Has been done in modern Never. Why not? Like, what if you say, why? If you can bring thing. down your husband right. again or whatever, that's, that's he special. He is there that Yeah. You're not forced. Well, it's a very holy mitzvah, actually. It's considered, as I said, the Ramban says it contains one of the great mysteries of Torah. It's a very holy mitzvah. And usually, of course, a brother in law is off limits even if a woman's husband died with children she's not allowed to marry her brother-in-law it's one of the relationships that's forbidden it's family here suddenly what is usually a sin a terrible sin becomes a mitzvah so so Yehuda is the first one who does it Mashiach comes from that from Yehuda and Tamar which tells us about the significance of Yibum there's the famous Midrash that says You know, the story of Yehuda is placed in Parshas Vayeshev, in the middle of the story of Yosef. Yosef is sold to the Egyptians, and then we take a break. We do the story of Yehuda with Tamar and kids and everything. And the twins, then we go back to Yosef, comes to Egypt, and he's hired, bought by a man named Potiphar, and the wife of Potiphar, and he ends up in prison and all that. It's placed right there in the middle. So the Medrash says that a lot of things were happening Simultaneously, namely, the brothers were busy selling their brother Yosef. And uh, the quote is, it's a very interesting quote from the Madrash. Brothers, the sons of Yaakov, were engaged in selling Yosef. Yosef was busy with his sackcloth, mourning his state. Yaakov was mourning and fasting for the death of his son. Ruvin was fasting for his sin with Yaakov and Bilhah many years ago. Yehuda was busy taking a wife. And the Medrash says, and what was God busy with? And the Medrashan says, He was busy creating the light of Mashiach. In other words, everyone is busy with something. (laughs) And we see it from our own little vantage point. For Yosef, there was nothing else going on besides the fact that he lost his freedom and he lost his family. You can imagine how traumatic that was. And for the brothers, they were busy persecuting Yosef. And Yaakov just lost his beloved son. And Yehuda was trying to get married. And Reuven was busy being remorseful for a sin he did many years before the story. When he Yaakov took his bed out of the tent of Rachel after she died and put it in the tent of Bilha and Ruvin took it out of the tent of Billah and put it in the tent of Leah and the terrorists saw that that Yaakov saw that as a very negative reality and what was Hashem doing? he was busy creating the light of Mashiach how? through parrots Yehuda being with Tamar and impregnating her and ultimately she would give birth to parrots and that would give birth to David so the seed of Mashiach was being developed in all of this Yeah. at the end of Rus we have the list To understand all this, we have to explore the deeper meaning of Leveret marriages. On a deeper level. what What it really represents. You know, every mitzvah contains a body and a soul. A guf and a neshama. The body constitutes the tangible and physical act of the mitzvah. The soul represents its spiritual and psychological and emotional dimensions. Sometimes the body of a mitzvah is inapplicable. Like Yibum today is by and large inapplicable. I don't mean to very, very seldom. I don't Some Sveidim have done it, but even today it's... Uh, I never heard I of a modern a case. Is a reason they wouldn't do it? By the Ashkenazim, they Dafka said they should not do it. Because you have to make sure that the intentions of both of them are very pure, and it's L'Sheh Mitzvah. It's a, very, it's a very intense mitzvah. So, they did not prohibit it, like by the Ashkenazim. But as I said, now, sometimes the body of a mitzvah is inapplicable, but the soul of a mitzvah is always applicable. In other words, it's spiritual dimension, it's emotional dimension, like karbonos, the sacrifices. We may not have it physically, but the concept of each one of them is timeless. The same is true concerning Yibu. The body of the mitzvah, the physical union between a widow and her brother-in-law is most part impractical today. And even if there are those who do it, but most people, Baruch Hashem, don't reach that situation. But the psychological counterpart of the mitzvah, the symbolic marriage between the spiritual widow and her spiritual brother-in-law, that applies to us as well. But what does this mean? We know that in Medrash, and Kabbalah, and in Chassidus, parents symbolize intellect and awareness, and children represent emotions and feelings. Like the Tanya says in chapter 3, that Chachma, the faculties of intellect, are called mothers. Chachma is called Abba, Bina is called Imam, father and mother. The intellect are identified with being parents, and emotions are called Bonim. Childish children what's the reason for this what's the reason that parents are defined as awareness, intellect and children are defined as emotions one of the so there are many explanations one of them of course is that emotions are born from intellect like children are born from parents but there's also a lot of other details here and let's let me give one practical example an explanation for this you could learn from parents and children how to deal with our own intellect and emotions. Take your mother, you know, some of you are mothers of children, so you'll relate to the example. And some of you have younger siblings. You have a child, a little child. And the child is in his bedroom or her bedroom. And starts screaming, screaming. I have to go to the hospital, call the ambulance. Uh... You don't right away call the ambulance. You go into the room to check out what happened. You don't right away panic and say, we're going to the hospital. You go in to check. And you see that unfortunately he uh, scratched his his foot on the corner of the bed and hurt himself. And there's a little, little cut. And it's very painful. And the kid is screaming. So you realize you don't have to go to the hospital. Baruch Hashem. You pick him up calm him down, you wash it off, you put on a band-aid, you tell him it's not so bad. Not every wail of a child has to be taken seriously. You have to come in and examine if it's serious or it's not serious. It may be as serious as he said it is or she said it is. It may not be as serious, it may not be serious at all, it may be a little serious. You have to come in and examine. That's the job of a parent. What you don't do is, you don't judge the child for screaming. You don't start screaming at the child. Why can't you grow up and mature, and it's not a serious thing, and you should never do this? Because we all understand that children are children. And they're impulsive, and they don't always have the ability to react to things in a completely focused and wholesome and mature way. That's what makes them children. We don't judge their outbursts. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we take seriously their outbursts. We come in and we examine it. Most important thing is we slowly teach them how to grow up and see the world in a way that they should be able to function ultimately independently as masters of their own destiny. All of this applies to intellect and emotion. You have an emotion. It's a child. It's very, very intense. It's screaming something. You don't have to act on it. You have to bring in the mommy or the tata, you gotta bring in the mind. Let the mind examine what the emotion is screaming about. And the mind might tell the emotion, You know you're really right. Or the mind will tell the emotion, I'm so sorry, it's not that serious. Or the mind will tell the emotion, it's fine, it's really fine, it's really fine. The mind should not judge the emotion in the sense of denigrate it and scoff at it and repress it because that will not that's not good for a person but on the other hand the mind slowly has to educate the emotions refine the emotions, elevate the emotions be mavara, what we call refining it so that's one of the reasons why the relationship between our mind and our heart between our intellectual faculties and our emotional faculties, like a relationship between parents and children. Because it gives us a very uh, clear-cut and sober direction in dealing with our own emotions. Emotions are children. Now, they're very cute, just like children. And they're also full of life, just like children. And in many ways, they're the essence of life, just like children. But they have their shortcomings, their children. And that's why they need parents. Now, Yibum. The Torah introduces Yibum that two brothers are living together. One of them marries and dies without children. So when we say two brothers are living together, two brothers are brothers who came from parents, they're two children brothers, they're referring, the Torah is referring to two forms of human emotions. And they're represented by two siblings because the siblings are like the emotions and their parents represent intellect and awareness so two siblings two brothers represent emotions why two because there's two types of human emotions the first category of emotions symbolized by one of the brothers is known in Hasidus as a person's conscious emotions born of your awareness and cognition. These are the emotions that we experience during our daily life. Everyone has emotions constantly. We emote to different things. It covers the entire spectrum of our lives, and it's usually born from certain awarenesses. You're aware that this is the reality of this person or this situation, and therefore you have a natural emotion that's born from awareness. There's never emotion without awareness. Emotion must always be preceded by awareness, because if you're not aware of what it is, you don't know how to emote. The awareness guides the heart of how to respond to certain things, based on how you analyze it, based on how you see it, how you dissect it. So the first category of human emotions are emotions that are born from a person's awareness, and a person's cognition. But there's also a second category of emotions. And this is symbolized by the second brother. And this is described as superconscious emotions. Not conscious emotions that are born from awareness, but superconscious emotions. Where do they stem from? They stem from the deepest parts of the human psyche. What we call the primal formations of the human psyche transcending our conscious awareness and cognition which means we have some emotions that are very very deep in us even though we're not consciously aware of them today in psychology of course we know about the subconscious world of a person subconscious world of a person means that there's a whole inner world of emotions and motives and fears that are subconscious you don't feel them in Kabbalah they're called keser beyond Chachma the crown above the head which is the source of emotions that comes from a place that's very, very deep in the person, even beyond the human being's awareness. And those emotions may not be conscious. I may not feel them, but they're very deeply etched in my psyche. So according to Hasidus, when you have two brothers sitting together, two siblings, and it's two types of emotions. of emotions. And a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> very well. And with sisters, no? Oh my kids are coming home. With sisters, no? Yeah, no. Men don't. They're not emotional. Women are No, no, it's not emotional. what, But they're human. But you think men don't have feelings? Your husband never cried? When my kids were born, he did. Huh. Trust me, men have feelings. They try to cover it up. They try to be stoic. Anyway. <laughs> Now, so it's two brothers representing two sets of emotions within us. One are the conscious emotions that are filtered through the brain in a restricted way that we can deal with. And one are extraordinary, complex, and intense yearnings and cravings that may never make their way to the fore of our exposed landscape of emotions so these are two brothers within each of us one of them gets married now ordinarily when there's brothers living together and then one of them gets married and has children what does that represent metaphorically it represents the functional psychologically healthy individual whose passing his feelings down to the child exactly very good very good this is the person whose emotions right produce children and they get passed down so his emotions fuel and give birth to children what does this mean? It means you have here a person who doesn't only operate on a level of super-conscious emotions, but he has structured conscious experiences and interactions. This allows the person to form relationships, to get married with people outside of himself, represented by marriage, and then create fruits that can impact the world and its future, represented by children and grandchildren. But sometimes there's a situation two brothers are living together and one of them dies without children. What does this represent in our life? This represents, if one of the brothers dies, it represents the death of the conscious heart of the man. This is describing the tragedy of a human being whose love Inspiration, enthusiasm, caring has been extinguished. Remember, we're now applying this mitzvah in a psychological level to each of us, not necessarily physically. So this brother who died represents the conscious emotions that that, have been dead. In lieu of a vibrant, passionate, spirited spirit which seeks, which yearns, which is inspired, which knows how to cry, which knows how to laugh which knows how to embrace, which knows how to let go, which knows how to interact, and yet even have children producing fruits and results, what happens here, this brother dies. The person turns into a numb creature, a frozen creature, a lifeless creature, paralyzed, shut down. The first brother, representing the feelings and emotions that give life its twinkle, it's oomph, it's passion is dead and he's dead without children during such moments of life people often succumb to emptiness they succumb to despair and the first victims of that despair are the people they were married with are the people they formed relationships with When our flow of inspiration dies or dries up, we usually withdraw into a cocoon. We isolate ourselves. We isolate ourselves from the world, from our loved ones, from ourselves. We feel depressed. We feel childless. We're unmotivated to produce, to have an impact. We're unmotivated to go beyond ourselves, to do something that will outlast our physical lives. That's the psychological counterpart of the foundation of Yibu. That, that and that happens there's two sets of emotions and to live you need the conscious emotions and that's what allows you to have relationships and to have children and to raise them in a healthy way and children here again I mean biologically and also symbolically to have influence, to have an impact but sometimes that person's that person dies represented, that, representing the fact that these emotions die what happens now? comes the Torah and tells us there's a mitzvah of Yibum. What's Yibum? Yibum is that the wife of the deceased man should not marry someone outside. Another person. Rather, her brother-in-law shall come to her, take her as a wife, and they should perform Yibum leveret marriages. What does this mean? So now what happens here is an interesting thing. I think it's a beautiful thing. Uh-huh. No, no, yeah. The wife of a person in Kabbalah is often referred to as the soul. The soul, the Neshama, the wife is often defined as the soul. So, what is the Torah saying here? The Torah is saying that in such a situation, the wife's husband died without children. What does this represent? The soul is there, but the emotions died. The Torah says, don't succumb. Don't succumb to the devil of depression. Don't succumb, don't allow for the death of marriage and the death of the dreams. Now that all of the conscious emotions are lost, it's time to call in the second brother. The second brother represents the higher emotions, the superconscious emotions, the infinite powers of a human being. And they will fill the shoes of the first brother. They will perpetuate the relationship that the first brother began. What does this mean on a practical level? Sometimes a person is standing at the abyss, Khalilah, and they're ready to be consumed into oblivion, carelessness. They have no inspiration, they have no emotions. So now you have to know don't let the wife, don't let the soul give up, now you have to know that they're deeply entrenched and embedded within you There are very profound and heroic and incredible deep emotions and sparks you may not be able to fully comprehend it but you can believe in it and embrace it and it can carry you through during times of emotional desolation so the woman, the soul gets in touch with a second brother and continues the life that began with the first brother. This is also connected to a very interesting passage we say in the month of Elul. In, in, in David Hashem A'iri, in Tehillim David HaMelech says, "Ki Avi ve'imi Azavuni v'Hashem My mother and father have abandoned me, have abandoned me, and God will take me in. What does that mean? What did David HaMelech mean? My mother and father have abandoned me and God will take me in. So Rashi says something very, very profound from Medrash. He says... (laughs) he says something very profound. on the from the Medrash. He says, I mean, he says it very briefly. I'll just elaborate what I think he's trying to say in more elaborate terms. You know, what's the most, uh, what would you argue is the most important moment of a child's life? What's the most fateful moment of a child's life, of an infant's, uh, a person's life? What would you think? You could say, of course, every moment. But obviously we can understand that in many ways the most important moment is the moment they're created. From nothing to something, right? The moment they're created. It's like, that's where it all began. There was something inside also. Huh? They were something inside also. Right. They move but, around. Us mothers feel it. You guys don't feel it. They right, feel right. You feel them moving and tickling. Right, us. but when yes, I say creation, I'm not talking about births. Even before. No problem. So there's the seed of life that comes from the father, there's the egg that comes from the mother. And when they come together, what we call conception, that's the moment like Yeshme Ayin, it's the most fateful moment. It, it enters into the realm of existence, even if on the tiniest microscopic level. What are the parents doing usually at that moment? They're usually sleeping, they're tired. As Rashi says, Rashi says they have a relationship and then afterwards this one turns his face this way. This one turns her face this way. And the child says, Avi vi azavuni. At that moment my mother and my father have left me. They're busy with themselves, they're tired. Who takes care? Rashem yasveni. God then embraces the child. The little seed to nurture it, to form it. So at that very, very moment, there's a very deep relationship with God, with Hashem. Vashem yasveini, Aviv imi It's a very intense idea when you think about it. The Altar Eben the Torah, takes it a step further. He says, sometimes, Imi, my mother represents Bina, comprehension. Avi represents Chachma, conception. Sometimes my mind abandons me. It's not producing the emotions. Avi a woman My awareness of life is not producing what it has to produce. My mother and father abandoned me. V'ashem yasveni. Now he says you have to go to Keser, which is beyond Chachma. That's what Yibum is. The first brother dies. So now you have to know there's a second brother that you could continue with, you must access those incredibly profound superconscious emotions that will allow you to continue your life that the first brother could not live and could not have children. In many ways, this is also reflective of the great drama of Jewish history. The prophets, the Chazal, describe the times of the Beis HaMikdash that God was manifested in the world in a very real way and the relationship was passionate and zestful. It's like the marriage between Hashem and the Jewish people was manifested in a very real way. The Rebbe writes in Torah Eir that in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, Hamach, and generally in earlier generations, Chazal, you had a situation where people can feel God very, very powerful. Like they started to think about Hashem and they would immediately get inspired. That's why they didn't need davening during the first Bessam Biktosh. Davening we have, they didn't have. Because the process was almost immediate. Now although there were many Rishayim, it's true, either you were a great Tzaddik or you were a great Rasha, but the two weren't mixed. The two realities didn't, did not mix with each other. It was two very different realities. There was either complete Toiv or complete Ra, and in the same person there could be different modes. Afterwards there's a tremendous mixture. So then, in the times of the Bessamigdash, this altar Rebbe says this in Tehran and Parshish Miketz, the Jewish people either loved God, or well, they hated, they fought him, but they were not indifferent to him. There was a creative relationship. There was a creative dynamic. They were either hugging God or they were fighting with God. But the reality of God evoked a very tangible and profound core in the Jewish psyche. The emotions to God were extremely conscious. Then the marriage reached a very heavy low point. The passion of God towards Israel and of Israel towards God somewhat faded away Hashem concealed His face from His bride the couple, so to speak, separated right? as the Torah says she's like a widow not a widow, but like a widow. What's like a widow? In the sense that a widow doesn't have her husband. They're separated. It's like a woman whose husband travels to the other side of the ocean and lives there for years. They're still married, but you can't say it's a creative and a dynamic and zestful relationship. They're not there with each other. So what happens then is, God had his home in Jerusalem, which was the center of the relationship, destroyed. The Jewish people were exiled, physically, but also emotionally. Jews have craved intimacy with Hashem, closeness with Hashem, but the yearning is not always fulfilled. Often it's denied. Instead of finding God, they often found darkness. Instead of encountering the divine, they often encountered the ugliness of the world and of life. And this is a marriage that is a very, very low point. How long can a couple remain separated without getting divorced? How long can a marriage be deprived of all passion without it breaking up? Do we still have a relationship with God? How long can a couple live this way? What would you tell a couple? They're separated for for, for, for 50 years, for 16. So what makes them married? How How long does it live that way? How long can a couple live that way? And if we're not really married to God, so why not end it and let everybody be free? What is the purpose of a limbo type of relationship? You're not really married and you're not divorced. This was the greatest question of Jewish history. And many different Jews responded different ways. Some Jews responded, let's call it quits, it's time to get divorced. And these were the new movements of Judaism, especially in the times of enlightenment and emancipation or throughout history, which said, let's call it quits, stop relying on God, stop relying on trade, let's do it our own way and become an independent nation in one way or another. This one uh, became so: the socialism or communism or secular Zionism or the Bundist. every movement in its own way, in one way or another, said, you can't live in limbo. You know we're Jews. We're connected to God, but we're totally at the mercy of other nations, and, and we're in exile. This was this was a great question. What was the response of Hasidus? the Response of Chasidus was Yibum. When our passion to God seems to be dead. And the romantic intimacy seems to fade away. The regular marriage is supplanted by the leverett marriage. In Gullus, they said the Jews may not be connected so much on a conscious level, but that's when the super conscious, the second brother, the superconscious emotions kicked in. It's true that the conscious passions and emotions through Golos have suffered very, very heavily. But what came out in Golos was a koyach of mysterious Nefesh, a power of incredible, super-rational commitment, even among so-called apathetic Jews who didn't have any conscious emotions. Come to any Jew and demand from him today to stop calling himself a Jew. He'll be bothered to the core of his soul. Why? consciously he may not feel a very deep relationship to God but on a deeper subconscious level they're absolutely one sometimes a person may feel completely indifferent and apathetic and then they hear something about let's say what's happening in Eretz what's happening in Israel they didn't think they cared they're living in America they don't have brothers or children there but suddenly they hear something that's happening to another Jew in another land and it touches them deeper than anything else touches them what happened to them? They're relaxed people, they're on vacation, they're living in the United States, the American dream, they're doing fine, their lives are not in danger, but they hear something happening, to Yisrael, and they're torn apart, they can't sleep at night, they can't eat, they can't relax. What is it? Because a person has many layers, and we're sometimes completely unaware of certain layers. And then something happens, and then you realize that who you thought you were, you were not. And who you thought you were not... May be who you are. The <laughs> Rebbe once said, I give alde Kavart Tishrei." A few months after the Six Day War, we know it was the Dalad Minim, right? Are the four types of Druze. the lulav, the esrog, the hadas, and the arava. So they're very opposite. The esrog has the taste and the smell, and the lulav has the 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 taste, not the smell, because it's a palm uh, palm branch, palm friend. and the hadas has the smell, no taste. The myrtle branch and the willow has no taste, and it has no aroma either. So it's the four types of Jews from one extreme to another extreme. And Sukkis, you say, they're all united, and you can only fulfill the mitzvah with all of them together. But how do you unite them? How can these four ever be united? And the Rebbe said, the only way is, and that's what the mitzvah is, Medav Zegeben Ashakel. Got to shake the lulav and the esrog. Why do you have to shake it? Just bring them together. He says they'll never come together if they're not shaken. As long as they're not shaken, the esrog looks at the arava, has no relationship with the arava. The arava looks at the lulav have no relationship with you. But the moment they're shaken, the moment they're shaken by certain realities, suddenly you see that the arava and the esrog are mamash one. They're all part of one mitzvah. Dalad min. What does this have to do with? This has to do with a set of emotions that are so primal, that are so deep, that are so complex, that under normal circumstances you're completely unaware of them and you don't need them. And life is going well. It's like when your car is working. You don't have to lift up the hood and start seeing the intricate mechanism which makes up the car. When your computer is working, you don't have to take it apart and see what it's made up of. But when the computer is not working, the car is not working now you're forced to open the hood and to go to places you usually don't go to when the natural emotions are not doing the job now the person is challenged to reach into a place that usually they're not challenged to reach into and their lowest moment can then become their highest moment now they relate to Vashem Ya so many ways, if you were to ask me, what was the Chiddush, what was the novelty of the Balsham Tev? What did the Balshemtiv come to give the Jewish world with Chesedus? I think one answer would be is he gave Judaism the mitzvah of Yibun. When the conscious emotions, when the conscious relationship, when the ongoing functional romance between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Knesset Yisrael seemed for many all but dead, the Baal Shem Tov introduced the mitzvah of Yibn. He articulated a new depth in the meaning of Jewishness. He articulated a new depth to the Jewish soul. What an Nesham is, what a Yid is, what the depth of Torah is. He revealed the subconscious, the superconscious relationship between the deeper layers of the human soul and the divine, the Sof. He revealed what Kabbalah or Hasidus would call the koichis Hamakifim, the keser, the superconscious depth of the relation between the Jew and God. He revealed, as we put it in the Hishaynes, on the third day of Sukkot, that the Yiddish and Hashem is chavuke Udvuke boch toienes Uloch yechid ali It embraces you, it cleaves to you, it carries your burden, it's ultimately completely one with you. Or to quote the Pasuket Shashirim that is frequently quoted in the works of Chassidus, I may be asleep. The I, the ego, the sense of I may be completely asleep, but the the depth of my heart, is awake. There is an inherent glow, a passionate fire that the soul has to God that the Tanya calls the Avamasuteris, the deeper love that could never be extinguished. And a person ought to dig and dig and ex- excavate the depth of godliness that already lay embedded within him or her. Because even if you feel consciously there is no relationship, on a deeper subconscious, superconscious relationship, the level on a steeper superconscious level the relationship is as strong as ever. This is how the Alter Rebbe, the Balatanya, explains in Torah Ur, one of the very tragic psukim in the Tanakh, the Novi Amos speaks about the Jewish people and he says, Naf lapsulas psulas kum. The virgin of Israel has fallen and it will no longer rise. On a literal level, this is the ultimate cry about the death of hope. Amos is describing that there's a sense of absolute destruction and ruin, a condition when you fall so low that you could never rise again. Nafla psulas Comes the Alter Ebba the Balatanya. And he says in Torah Uri Megillus Esther, a special Mayimid of Tzadigibel, he says there that after she has fallen, she can no longer rise. You know why? Because right now, in the depth of her abyss, she has reached the greatest heights, and that's why, Loisisive comes, she can't rise any higher because she already reached the greatest heights. Once you have truly fallen, the ego is shattered. Now you're capable of accessing the most profound part of your soul, the superconscious spark of infinity that embodies the endless light of God. Implanted within the human condition. Till you fall, you rely on the more superficial dynamics of your personality, since they're functioning nicely. But when these parts of your identity go out of commission, you're compelled to dig deeper and to discover the depth of depth, the quantum level of your consciousness. So paradoxically, your lowest moment is essentially your highest moment. She finds the deepest relationship, the relationship of keser. This is what Yib is. And when you embrace this level of self and you allow it to emerge in a time of crisis, then what happens is the firstborn son whom she bears after she marries the second brother, will then perpetuate the name of the dead brother so that his name is not obliterated from the Jewish people, as the Possek says in Parshish say, because as time goes on, you regain the name of the dead brother. In other words, your conscious passions and emotions will be resurrected. So as Golis continued, and the crisis seemed to have no end in sight, and the question was, what is the Jew today? What does it mean to be a Jew today? When we don't have the miracles of the Beis HaMikdash, when we don't have the experience of Matan Teda, when all the arrows are pointing down and so many Jews, by the millions, were being lost to our people. And the great response of the Baal Shem Tev, which emerged in history during the same time that the Enlightenment began, which posed a very serious challenge to sophisticated and deep Jews, now, what was revealed was the inner melody of the Jewish soul, the inner yearning of the Jewish soul, the shir Hashirim of the Jewish soul that could never be snuffed out, that could never be extinguished, that could never be destroyed. Hasidus revealed the inner chords of the Neshama, where Yehuda Levi says, says, I am a harp to your melodies. It revealed the keynote, it revealed the inner chords of the Jewish soul, saturated, filled with a musical relationship with the Rabbi Neshleelam, with God. Now we'll understand why Yehuda was the first person to engage in Yibum. Yehuda is the Melach, he's the father, the Zeda of Mashiach. The child born of the Yibu marriage with him and Tamar is parrots. As we know, parrots, as we said, will become the great, great grandf- became the great great grandfather of David Hamelech, the great great grandfather of Mashiach. Why was this dynasty commenced? Why did it begin through Yibu? Because it's exactly the secret of the leveret marriage of the Yibu that allowed the Jewish people to endure their faith, their courage, their dignity throughout the darkness of exile through which, through the coming of Mashiach they'll be able to reclaim the passion that faded away. What is Yibam? The first brother died, the emotions died. As we said, the sibling represents emotions. There's no children. The woman could now say, okay, next, let's move on. No, she sticks it out, the soul sticks it out brings in the second brother, which represents the superconscious emotions. And what that does is, not only does it produce children, but it gives life to the brother who died. Which means it brings back the conscious emotions also. It's the power of Yibum that was the state of Malchus, that kept up the state of Malchus among the Jewish people. The state of Dignity and could produce Mashiach, which is the time when the world will be refilled with that relationship, that was lost through golos And that's why in Elul we say, L'david Hashem Airi. when we say, Ki avi ve'imi Azavuni vahashem yasveni, because sometimes a person looks at themselves, and they doubt the fact that they have inspiration, they doubt their emotions, the fact that they're good. They doubt that they're holy. That's probably the greatest doubt of people, that they're holy. There's no imi, there's no avi, there's no chachma, there's no bina. On that we say, Hashem yaasveni, that the mitzvah of Yibn represents that super-conscious relationship that's always there, and that defies even what we will ever be able to speculate and comprehend. And that's why Parshish Kiseitzi is read in the month of Elop, one of the reasons is the Mitzvah of Yibum, which is connected to this unique message of Imi Va Avi and Vashem Yasveini. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes, make even a small contribution. At triple w. dot dot net slash donate.